Hello, and welcome to the Scuttlebutt Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Briggs, and this show exists to uncover the stories and tactics from the world's most interesting veterans at the top of their craft. This show will make you more informed about unique industries and careers, get you asking questions that challenge you both personally and professionally, and give you specific steps on becoming more lethal in your life and business. Today, I'm speaking with Hal Fisher. Hal is a former recruiter in the Air National Guard, a serial entrepreneur with several exits, and is one hell of a salesman. Expect to hear how Hal brought his sales expertise to build one of the first military career fair expos, which ended up being acquired by private equity. You'll get a discussion on when it's time to exit a company and how to suss out salesmen with malicious intent. Hal also breaks down his five steps of a sales process, the relationship between sales and marketing, and why the biggest thing you need to become an effective salesperson is overcoming fear of rejection. You can find this episode as well as the video version, transcripts, and written content to keep learning all at scuttlebuttpodcast.co. Please enjoy this conversation with Hal Fisher. thing on my mind today is perfectionism lately i've been running into a lot of people that are claimed to be perfectionist about everything but actually getting started doing something say a bit more about that is it that they claim to be perfectionist but aren't yeah 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 i think it's this People go through this exercise when starting businesses or whatever. It's I've got to get everything right. I've got to get everything perfect before I can actually go out and do the thing, right? Mm -hmm. And they seem to never get started, right? So they're so worried about everything being perfect that it creates this inability in them to actually get started doing the thing. And I've been running into this a lot lately with folks. Why do you think that is? Ego. I think ego is the number one thing. And here's what here's how I've been helping people wrap their head around this. What's perfect to you is not perfect to me. And what's perfect to me is not perfect to you. So really, does this perfectionism even exist? What is perfect? Well, hopefully making a lot of sales. The comment about perfectionism resonates with me in a big way because it's something I'm guilty of, spending a lot of time on things that end up not mattering because of much bigger issues. It's easy to spend time on branding and other minor things, but at the end of the day, if your product isn't good, you really don't have anything. Yeah. You got to get it going first, and then you can get it right. But you got to get it going. Can't get it right first and then get it going. It doesn't work like that, especially in entrepreneurship. It does not work like that at all. And what you'll find out is as I talk and how can I talk about this or know a lot about that? Because I am a former self-proclaimed perfectionist. I was the same way. I feel like the military, I blamed them for that, <laughs> especially back to basic training, how everything needed to be perfect to during your inspections and things like that. So I think a lot of people coming from the military and especially into entrepreneurship suffer from this. 
So let's put you in a coaching role here for a second. Let's just say I'm telling you that I need to work on my landing page for a couple more days and get that optimized before launching. What is it that you're talking to me and telling me to make that connection there? Yeah, done is better than perfect, right? Because if you can't get the thing done, then you're never going to know that if it's going to work or not. So you got to get it out there. Listen, you don't decide perfection. The market does. And unless you can get your thing out there, the market will never get you feedback. So I believe a lot of people like to hide behind that, that I need to get it perfect before I get out because there's some fear, there's some ego in there about what if I get this out there and the market doesn't like it and I get negative feedback. That is so important. Like you say, it's fear, but it doesn't really necessarily feel like that in the moment. It's like you're hiding what you actually think will come from the launch. Ultimately, you need to find out if the product is actually good enough and all these smaller things won't actually be an indicator of that. Bad landing page may not convert well, but that's not exactly the point. You need to sell something to see whether or not it's going to actually connect and then come back to the drawing board if necessary. If you never get it started, then there's no risk, right? Like you haven't any risk and you can just sit back and be like, oh yeah, I'm working on getting my thing out there, but I got to get this and this. And then, and it's not until you actually get it out there that now there's risk. There's risk in your reputation because I did this thing and I got this thing out there. And now there's all these expectations of what's going to happen next. But if we can sit back and just be, hey, I'm getting ready to get ready. Not, it's not out there yet. Then there's no expectations out there that we have to meet within ourselves or within others. This is so tough to grapple with, especially for junior entrepreneurs, myself included in that bucket, because you look around at the people ahead of you and you see people who are kind of like seemingly have it all figured out. They're working on nuts and bolts types of issues, which makes me think, that that's what we ought to be working on. I kind of recently experienced like that sales breakthrough process when somebody offered to buy something from me, which kind of did the work for me, but it made me realize that I hadn't actually sold anything to anybody. I haven't exchanged money with another person, which is really the ultimate test of whether you have something that's worth selling or not. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, but I tell people the same thing when I coach folks, it's to go out and sell the thing and then figure out how they're going to actually pay you. Mm -hmm. Guess what? You don't have to figure out how it's going to pay you if nobody's buying. We're going to get a, into a bunch of your entrepreneurial ventures over the course of the conversation. I'm super excited to dive into these. I think it would be best if you gave me a little bit of a high level overview on what gets you here. Maybe take two to three minutes and try to cover as much as you can in that time. Sure. Spent 10 years in the Air Force, all different components of the Air Force, from active duty to guard to reserve. And my last assignment was as a recruiter. Loved it. Thought I would do that for the rest of my career. It's always what I wanted to do from the minute I signed up in the military with my recruiter was to be a recruiter. And he set me on that path and I made it happen. Long story short, my career was cut short at 10 years because my dad had a roofing business that got into some financial trouble. So I had to leave the military 
and go help my dad with his roofing company. So myself and my sister actually restarted the roofing company under a different corporation, took the name and everything else from him, and then rebuilt that company. Two years later, my dad still would not leave that company. We were so much alike that I knew that one of us had to go and it wasn't going to be him because even though I had restarted the business, it was his baby from the beginning. So I decided to leave, went back to my roots in recruiting. Instead of now putting people in the military, I was taking people out of the military, putting them into corporate jobs, which I absolutely loved because I got to stay connected with the military community. This is back in the early 2000s when there wasn't a lot of companies out there doing that. There was probably only four or five companies at the time that were actually helping military veterans get jobs. I know there's a lot more now, and that's great to see. Wind up becoming an entrepreneur inside that company and starting my own company inside that company with the help of the company that I was working with. We were able to build enough value in that company that wind up selling it back to the partners that helped me start it to become a partner in the larger corporation. We had a private equity firm come in, buy us out. So it was a really nice exit. So I got to exit two companies in about a year. So that was really cool. And then I got the entrepreneurial bug and I was like, Hey, I know how to do this now. I've, I know how to build a company. I know how to sell it. That's what I want to do. Went invested in a couple other companies. Some were winners, some not. Got into consulting, which a lot of people do after they exit businesses. Started helping other companies grow. Everything from oil and gas to software, to technology, to pharmaceutical, started doing a lot of sales and marketing consulting. And then over the last 10 years, started doing coaching. So started selling coaching programs for digital marketing, for real estate, for social media marketing, and was a partner in one of those companies most recently, and then had the opportunity to get a buyout on that company. And then most recently started a sales training company to where I work with digital marketers and agency owners and help them build and scale their sales within their company. And then through that, we've also started a fulfillment company for those folks that are coming in and selling at a really high level that don't have the time to fulfill, meaning building websites, doing search engine optimization, social media marketing. We have a fulfillment company now on the back end that fulfills that. And then also Startup Veteran is, is a passion project of mine where we every week feature a veteran entrepreneur and have them tell their story about how they started, challenges, obstacles, things like that, lessons that they learned from the military on how they're building their business and beyond. That is catches you up to date in a really short period of time over the last 30 years. You summed that up so nicely. One of the, the questions that jumped right out at me from the beginning, you're talking about how you jumped in to go help your dad with this company. And then in the following company, you started something internal. Uh, you, and you said that that was where the entrepreneurship bug kicked in. What was it that actually made that click for you? Was it the, the financial exit? Was it creating something from nothing? What was it that kind of drew you in? Because it sounds like maybe you've got some family roots in entrepreneurship as well. 
Yeah. So I think I always had an entrepreneurial bug, but didn't really know what business I would do. So having started up two businesses, kind of start restarting the roofing business, learning a lot about that. Also during that time, I went and learned how to build websites. This is back in the late nineties when it was really difficult to build websites. So it took some of my GI bill money, learned how to build websites. So then I started to learn marketing as well. So I think taking the sales experience that I had from the military and then taking the marketing experience that I was learning on the outside and then running a business as an entrepreneur, seeing all the day-to-day tasks and then starting to understand that I could layer those skill sets and those experiences on any other type of business. So then going back into recruiting um, and seeing how it worked in a civilian level and then starting a company inside there from not from necessarily from nothing, because with my dad's company, I had a foundation for what he did uh, with the roofing business. Same thing when I was working for this recruiting firm, I had the foundation of what they've done and I had all the support elements and things like that. Knowing that and then getting a crash course on really quick on starting, building, scaling, and then selling a business all in a really short period of time. I was just like, this is a lot of fun. It's exciting. It, it never changes, right? Like you, there's always something going on, always something to do. And then just looking at everything on the outside, there's so much opportunity out there. And I noticed that I could layer these skill sets that I had on two different businesses, three different businesses, really, the two were in parallel together. But then the challenge of what could I do next? Can I layer this on another business? And then I just got that, that entrepreneurial bug to just keep going. You're talking about layering on these skills and no doubt over time you're adding to this toolbox, you're learning different elements of the business. But if you were to pick maybe one or two of those things that you brought to the table in these organizations, what do you think that those would be? It was sales and marketing, combining them both. And that's when I noticed that a lot of companies weren't doing that. Like sales and marketing back then, they weren't really talking talking together, right? And marketing is like the front of the funnel. Like, how do you get your brand out there? How do you get customers to find out about you so that they can get inside of your sales funnel, whatever that is, to go ahead and wind up buying the thing? And then sales is the end. It's a byproduct of really good marketing that will lead to making it much more easier in sales. So that's when I launched LSP Consulting, which meant lean sales process, which was literally integrating your marketing and your sales and having your sales teams work together. What I like to talk about is a golf analogy, right? So here's the difference between marketing and sales. So think about marketing as your driver, right? Like you're trying to drive the ball as close as you can to the hole. And the hole is the sale, right? So that as a marketer, if your marketing is that good, you hit such a long drive, the closer that you can get it to the hole, right? To the pin, then all sales needs to do is come in and knock it in from there. Now, if you're not great at marketing, then that's going to be a long shot for the sales guy to come in. But if you are really good at marketing, instead of using, instead of having to use a five iron or a pitching wedge or something like that, the marketing is not that good. If it's really good, then all the sales has to do is use the putter because the marketing drove it close to the hole and sales just needs to put it in. You said that at the time, businesses were not combining these two, or maybe they weren't working as closely as they should have been. What was it that you would go into these companies in a consulting capacity and do right away? 
Is it that we're going to get sales and marketing team together in one room, get them on the same page, make sure we're talking about the same message? Or what exactly did that process look like? And what was the problem that you were overcoming and combining those two? Number first of all, they hated each other. <laughs> marketing hated sales. Sales hated marketing because they would just blame each other. Sales, is, sales isn't closing any deals. That's because the marketing leads suck. And if sales isn't, isn't closing deals, the marketing teams, the sales sucks, right? And it was this constant back and forth. And you had to get them all together. Like you guys are on the same team. And I had to give my, my, my golf analogy with the driver and the putter. Marketing is a driver, sales is a putter. This is how you guys are going to work together, right? And then it was a matter of implementing different systems so that we could actually start being transparent among both divisions on what was actually happening, right? So the feedback was really important. So if marketing was driving a certain amount of leads, then sales, if the leads suck, then they need to tell them why they did, right? And what they, and then marketing could change their marketing or where they're marketing at or their message or whatever, but they got to know what they're doing. And then if, if the sales isn't, it aren't being closed on the other end, marketing needs to know that. What is it about those leads? Is it where they're coming from? Is it, are they falling through some part of the funnel? And this is where like technology really became important. We were starting to implement Salesforce CRM into a lot of different companies. And they had a thing called lead scoring, where you could tell as a lead came through, where did they go? You sent a piece of content. Did they open it? They would get a point for that. Did they click? They would get two points for that. Did they schedule a call? They would be. So we started to create this lead point system to where they knew that we were sending them five, six, seven point leads, eight, nine point leads, whatever it was, and 10 obviously being the best. So that the salesperson knew how far along this person was and what type of potentially education that they had to do about this company's product or service more or less based on the score. Number one, getting them in the room to talk together. Number two, getting them to understand we're all on the same team. Number three, we've got to communicate. If you're not getting it, you need to let me know. I need to let you know what I'm doing. You need to let me know what you're doing, right? And then the last thing was creating this score system so that we could actually visualize where people were in the process and how likely that lead would be to close. So then we could see, do we have a marketing problem? Do we have a sales problem? Sometimes we're getting eight, nine point leads and they're not closing. Now we got a sales problem. If we're only getting leads in the two, three score, now we've got a marketing problem. So to be able to identify what area that we have to work on rather than playing the blame game. So it not only helps with the overall brand messaging of the product in terms of making sure that the salespeople are hitting the same points as the marketing team is in product, but it actually helps you with attribution. So how has that process changed? This is obviously some time ago. How has the technology or maybe other factors changed the relationship between sales and marketing uh, in terms of where we are in the market today? Well, I think it's it's been these kind of lead systems. Marketing is general, content marketing and social media and things like that. There's so many people are out there doing research about your product or service before they even buy it. That's all marketing, right? Making sure that you have the right things on your website, you're putting the right content out, the right social media, the right reviews, those things like that. And knowing that's marketing, marketing does that to support sales because buyers now are more educated than they've ever been before. So you better have a solid marketing department 
out there that is putting that kind of stuff in the marketplace because they're going, buyers are going out there to look at it. And now really sales, there's statistics that say that 80% of people have their mind made up whether they're going to buy or not before they even talk to a salesperson. So this is marketing, right? Whether it's a good driver or a bad driver, it could be 80% bad marketing, 80% good marketing, right? And then the salesperson only have to do that 12, that 20% to, to get them over the top. Now, sales is different. We're just talking about a, ge a general industry here is sales. This could be different for any type of company, any type of deal structure, things like that, but you're always going to need marketing and even larger scale deals, even more going to have to rely on your marketing than sales, in my opinion. That's an interesting insight. I'm sure it's been insane to watch how the internet has changed how these roles interact with one another when everyone has access to the same information, that differentiation becomes a critical piece of getting that customer over the line when you've got lots of products essentially offering the exact same thing. One of the questions that I had looking at your career, you've been a part of a lot of businesses in the early days. How do you think about what problem you want to work on? What is worth putting your, your resources behind? Yeah, I think finding something obviously that you're passionate about, I think is important. Steve Jobs talked about this, right? Working on like your great work or what is that going to be? And that's going to be different for everyone. But what I can tell you for me, it's always been the businesses that I've gotten involved with have always been passion led. So it's been led by a passion of, that I had, first of all, for that market. And then second of all, for finding a problem and solving a problem in the market. And when I'm able to put those two together, I'm able to put my passion together with finding a problem to solve in the marketplace, then those have been winners. But the ones that have been losers are when I didn't really follow my passion, and but maybe I did find a product market fit out there, but I just really wasn't that, that passionate about it. And that's just for me. And I think it's different for everybody else out there, depending upon what your background is and, and your experiences. And now being more later in my career, I have certain things that I want to work on. I have a limited amount of time, just like everybody else does. So I might as well be working on my great work. And that my great work is things that I'm passionate about and markets that I feel that I can solve a problem that exists there. I think particularly when it comes to entrepreneurship, you hear a lot of differing opinions about what you should start or what you should be doing with your time. There's a large camp of people that will say, just find something that you can get traction on and run with it. That passion piece mentioned really comes into play when things start getting difficult because you need to care enough to persist through that, that difficulty. I'm imagining that some people can, but it just maybe makes it easier. Would you maybe recount this story of building the Veterans Career Fair Expo? I want to hear a little bit about the backstory of that and why that was a problem worth solving. Yeah. Back then I was working for a contingency recruiting firm. So helping military people was the business model and then finding jobs for them with corporations that would pay you a recruiting fee, a contingency fee. And most of the time that's about 30%. So 30% of that person's annual salary. So if somebody, if the company is going to pay a person $100,000, then the company pays 30% as a recruiting fee to the firm. So that's $30,000. So a lot of larger companies have budgets built in for paying contingency fees and things like that. But then there's the majority of companies that don't, they don't pay fees. They don't have budgets 
for that stuff. But what I realized was a lot of them went to job fairs and they had budgets for job fairs. They just didn't have budget for contingency and they wanted to hire military. The other, So that's the problem that I saw like in the corporate sector. That's where the opportunity was to make money. And obviously as a business, you want to make money. So it's like, hey, wait a minute. There's all these companies. They want to hire military people, but they don't pay contingency fees because they don't have budget, but they have job openings and they want to hire military. Okay. So that's a problem that exists over there. Okay. Now, the other problem that I saw was in the military recruiting sector to whereas the majority of the people that we were placing that companies would actually pay fees for were junior military officers and technicians, which we all know is a very small part of the military. So I like to think it was maybe 20%. So we're looking at an entire military pool of people that get out every year, over 200,000, right? And we're saying now our total addressable market, there is only about 60,000 people. So what about the rest of them, right? So if we looked at it as a large, in our TAM, right, it's a much larger market of people that are getting out of the military that want jobs, but we can't place those guys, because corporations won't pay fees for them. They won't pay fees for mid-level managers or that sort of thing. But you know what? These other companies will. So that's when the, the ideal dawned on me. It's like, hey, listen, we can help this other 80% of military folks. And then we can help these companies hire these military folks through job fairs. And there were only a couple of companies doing it. Most of them were doing it very poorly. They were doing it on bases in cafeterias and stuff like that. And my thought process was, these guys are getting out of the military. Why are we still keeping them on bases and cafeterias running these, herding them through these different job fairs? So my idea was like, hey, let's rent hotels, nice hotels like embassy suites, Marriott's and things like that. Like most of the time in the corporate structure, that's where they're going to be in those kind of places. And that's what we started doing. So we started hosting job fairs off the base in these very nice Marriott's embassy suites, double tree hotels, those type of things. And then instead of us trying to find candidates for military people and matching them like a matchmaker service, it was like an a la carte, just invite all these military members in. These companies would pay to have a booth there or a table, and then they can hire as many as they want. And they and the military member can come in and have an opportunity to visit 30, 40 companies in one day. And this is just as the internet, this is early 2000s, sending resumes via email and stuff like that was super new coming on, networking, getting out front, meeting people. And obviously you send a piece of paper and it's one thing, but when you're actually getting in front of somebody and meet them, it's a totally different thing. So that's where, that's an idea of me taking a passion, working with military folks, finding a hole in the market, military people that need jobs that we can't place, and then companies that need military people that aren't going to pay us fees the place. And let's match those two together. And that's what we did. So the business model for you was that you would put up the upfront cost of the hotel or venue and then charge the employers to come in and solicit the people from there. That's like super clever because you're actually tackling a bigger piece of the pie, allowing employers without the budget. And then you're also getting people that pay those like hiring the contingency fees as well. And some of them we found were both. Some of them we found that they did pay fees, but only for these type of jobs. And they do go to job fairs only for these type of jobs. So we were still able to use the companies out there that were, some of them were paying us fees and coming to the job fairs as well, because they were going to other job fairs. So they might as well pay us to come to our job fair. I see a lot of the people in the 
in-person event businesses. They're very popular and a lot of them actually get rolled up to private equity, which it sounds like what was what happened in this case here with you. Is the cash generation of these businesses so high that makes them attracted to private equity or what is it that leads to the interest in the, the in-person events? I think it's talent. I think anybody that can put on an event, whether it's a job fair or whether it's some sort of a paid event, some sort of a conference or something like that, anybody that can gather a large group of people that are within a specific market segment, and then there's that demand on the other side of the people that want them, whether they want to hire them, whether they want to market to them, whether they want to advertise them. If you can put the ideal client together for somebody and they don't have to do that on their own, like they'll pay you to do that. Mm-hmm. And especially when it comes to hiring talent, right? Like it's it's tough to find good people, right? And you have to have a whole team. There's whole teams that just do sourcing, just go out there and find the people to, to, to interview, right? Screen resumes, all that other stuff. But it's, man, if I could just come to this one event and there's 100, 200 of the ideal people that I'm looking for, whether once again, whether it be a job fair or a conference or whatever, that's super, super valuable for some mm-hmm. to come in where I could just spend 1500 2000 whatever it is to get in front of that many people. I couldn't do that on the internet for that price. Obviously, you guys were very early to the career fair event expo space for the military specifically, which are much, much more popular now. Where do you think the opportunities lie in the field today? Man, that's a great question. There's so many people out there doing military recruiting and job fairs and things like that. I think it's really uh, a challenging space to be in. If I was going to start a recruiting company now or a job fair, definitely wouldn't be in the military space. What I would look at is different. My first thing I do is go to the old Google or the chat GPT and look for emerging industries. Where is the need going to be over the next five or 10 years? That's how you've got to think about this stuff. What are going to be those jobs that are going to be created, that are going to be in demand. And I would try to put something together around that if I was to go into the space. Do you think that the vet transition space is overly saturated now? Yeah, there's a lot of resources and and that's great. It's great to see it. Obviously, there's a lot of businesses out there. It must be very profitable for people, right? Because at the end of the day, like we pay the government a lot of money to do it and they don't do it. So that's why private companies have to exist to get the job done. So it's great to see so many ones out there supporting the veterans. So there, there obviously must be, must be some sort of a market out there for, like I said, I've been removed from it for a while. There are a ton of agencies and nonprofits in the space. Like you say, there must be some market for it if otherwise people wouldn't be going after it. When you look at the revenue, right? So as I mentioned, if somebody gets hired for a thousand, $100,000 a year job, that's 30 grand. So 10 of those. So if I get 10 hires, right? Then we're talking 300 grand. If I get a hundred hires, talking to $3 million business. So it doesn't take a lot of deals to make a lot of money in the recruiting space. One man gang, you're placing, even if it's not 30%, and I contingency fees have went maybe down 25, 20% or whatever, but salaries sure haven't like they're, they've gone up. So it doesn't take, you could literally sit there, be a recruiter, hire, get one person hired a month and make a couple hundred grand and not have a huge overhead because all you're doing is you're just matchmaking, right? That's it. 
So there's not a lot of not a lot of cog in there, not a lot of cost of goods because you're just you're pro- providing a service. So that company you ended up exiting from got acquired, and you've had a couple other exits where similar things have happened. Have you thought about exactly when it is the right time to exit a business? Yeah, I, one philosophy I have: it's never too early. It's only ever too late. You don't want to be too late. And I think it's a, a personal thing. Like it's when are you? When do you know that you're ready to walk away from your business? And a lot of times, it's people have personal attachments and, and things like that because they've grown them and those sort of things. But for me, I don't think there's ever too early. There's only too late. Have you ever maybe felt too personally attached to a business and thought about how to keep from getting to that point, or or is that okay? Maybe no, I don't have any emotional attachment. At the end of the day, it's a business, and the thing about it is. I started up so many of them, like I could go start another one and and that's fine. And for me, and that's what I enjoy doing. So I think there's different types of entrepreneurs at different stages. I'm more of kind of your startup entrepreneur. I like to get the business up and going. And I got about a two to three year at best shelf life before I'm looking to move that on. Because as a business grows and puts more layers in, hire more employees and things like that, it's a different skill set. There's a different skill set in being a CEO of a business that's under 10 people than being a CEO that's running a business that's over 100 people. It takes a different skill set. It's really rare to see people like Jeff Bezos of Amazon and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook who have founded companies, right? And went all the way through growing those businesses. And taking them public, like it's a different skill set. Like you, you've got to learn it. Like it's, and you're not going to learn on the job either. So you better have some good mentors, some good board members, good investors, those sort of things. But it's very rare to see somebody go from from startup all the way through to to exit a business over 10, 20, 30 years. Do you think that some self awareness about what type of person you are is maybe helpful in deciding where you fit into the entrepreneurship wheel? Maybe whether or not you're the type of person to go and start something yourself. Maybe you join a company when it's already got ten employees. Uh, it's kind of they've already got the first problem solved, or it's about growth. How, how do you think about where to insert yourself? Yeah, self-awareness is big in anything that you do. And it's tough because ego gets in the way a a lot of times. I think that having that self-awareness is vitally important. And I think also knowing that the people that you have uh, around you as well, and as you're hiring and bringing people into your company, making sure that you understand those type of persons. And Jim Collins, Good to Great, one of my favorite books of all time, always talks about getting people on the bus. You got to get the right people on the bus and get the right people into your business, but then you have to know the right seats to put them. And I think that's one thing that I pride at myself over the years is being really good at spotting talent, hiring talent, and putting them in the right seat. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important as an entrepreneur, but all that comes from self-awareness as well. Being aware enough about yourself can make you aware of some of the other characteristics and things like that within the people that you're bringing on in your company. What exactly is it that you have been optimizing for in like life slash business? Obviously, you must love this uh, for staying on the hamster wheel for so long here. Yeah, this is what I do. Like, I, I don't collect baseball cards anymore. I don't play football or baseball anymore, which were my hobbies as a kid growing up. I don't 
like to ride motorcycles through the countryside. I don't collect anything anymore. Like this is what I do. So this is my, this is like my hobby. I believe in an integrated life to where like you can integrate all the things into your life. So it's just, you don't have to stop and do this, don't have to stop and do that. Don't have to stop in that. And this has just been an integral part of my life. And it's just inter- integrated with all aspects of my life. So it's, I don't even consider it like work. Like people are like, oh my gosh, you work all the time. I'm like, really? I feel like I, I, I hardly ever work. And when you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. You can tell someone's deep down that path when they start listing off hobbies and you see that overlap between those and and work there. That's for sure. It's all kind of one bucket. And I think that that's aspirational for people. I think people shy away from blurring those lines, maybe unaware of the fact that you can like actually enjoy what you do. I think that that's possible. A lot of people, I feel like, don't think that that is a thing. And I vehemently disagree with it. Uh, work uh, work does not have to be a, a sentence to be miserable, that's for sure. I want to shift gears a little bit here. We started to touch on some of the sales stuff at the beginning. You're obviously prolific with sales, uh, maybe going back to your recruiting days at getting people into the military to come serve our country. I would love to have you start off by describing what you think sales is from a high level, and then we'll see what we can learn from you on that front. Sales is one word. It's belief. It's believing in the product or the service that you have and believing that you can solve a problem with somebody else. Like that. That's really all sales does. It just comes down to belief. And that would be my kind of one word sum up for sales. And so I think that's first and foremost, your best salespeople just really, I believe strongly have a, a deep, something deep down in within them believes that like everybody needs my product. I think about the air force when I sold the air force, I love the air force. And the way that we was taught to sell the air force was look at what the air force did for me. They could do the same thing for you. That's how we sold off of our personal experience. So you really had to love the thing to be able to say that, like that that's true. So that's really where I was ingrained in that. And then when I went to work with my dad's roofing business, and said, man, how could you have so much belief and so much love for roofing a product? It wasn't necessarily the roofing product itself. It was what I knew that it could do for that person. That I knew that if our company put that roof on for that person, that they were going to get a great job. They were going to get backed by a company that would stand behind them and their guarantee. And that roof would protect them and their family. So that's the belief that I had when I went out there. So my whole thing was, if I didn't sell somebody a roof, I felt like I was giving them a disservice. I felt that if the next guy comes behind me and sells this thing, he's not going to do his good job. He's not going to be able to stand behind this thing. Only I can. And that's, and that's why I was really successful in that. Then move over into the military. I knew the people that were coming out of the military. I knew how great they were. And I knew that corporations out there, that they would find a lot of value in them being able to help them with their business. So I had this strong belief that needed to help these men and women get jobs and we needed to help them to be able to build these corporations. So I had that belief, right? And I had that desire to want to go out there and help them solve that problem. And that's what I think it is. Do you think that you can be an effective seller without that belief? 
No. Unless you're just a very unethical person. Um, Sure, anybody. That's where I think a lot of people misconstrue sales, right? Because, you know, what being being a sales manipulator, right? Which a lot of people think, oh, sales is manipulation. Well, manipulation is only about intent, right? So what is your intent? Could you be a good salesperson, not have that? Probably, but that's not really a salesperson. That's somebody that's a manipulator, right? Because it's all about what their intent is. So Mm -hmm. is your intent to manipulate somebody or is your intent to really solve a problem? That's an interesting statement. Manipulation is all about intent because when you're selling somebody something, you're trying to manipulate what they think about the product or manipulate their perceived need of something. But maybe that's the differentiator. Have you come across of a lot of unethical sellers in your day? Yeah, especially in the roofing business. Really? That's that. That's why I was so good about selling against them because it's almost like I had an enemy out there that I was selling against. It's almost like I was back in the military trying to serve and protect. And that's the way that I thought about it. Yeah, there were a lot of very unethical people out there that hurt a lot of people and did a lot of damage to a lot of people. How exactly do you spot those types of things? Are there cues that you can look for to kind of spot that malicious intent? People will tell you all the time, you just got to ask them, <laughs> hey, what's your experience in buying a product or service like this before? And they'll tell you the good and the bad, mostly the bad. So just about asking the right question. What, what inspired you want to reach out to me? What, what could I possibly do? You've got so mm-hmm. many different options out here. What do you mean? So this is you talking to a prospective customer. If I was interested in knowing what their experience was before, what type of things, how have you tried to solve this problem before? Or is this the first time you've had this problem? So that gets you closer to figuring out whether they dealt with a bad actor before so that you know what to speak to. Yep. We deal with this a lot. My my sales company, they sell digital marketing services. So SEO services, website builds, things like that. Nine times out of 10, the customers that they're running into have had a bad experience with a company that has taken their money and done nothing with them. So that right out of the gate, like we have to be able to address that. So I like to call out the elephant in the room right away. Let's, I know that elephant is hiding somewhere in there because I could tell by looking at this person's website or looking into their metrics and things like that, somebody chances are have been doing something here before. So let's call it out in the room. What's your experience been with guys like me? So you're just trying to get out in front of what the customer may already be thinking. Yeah. You got to get out in front of it because you don't want them to sit there the whole time thinking a certain way and you're not asking the right questions to pull those things out. And they still have that perception that you're just like everybody else. So you've got to do things differently. Yeah. So just asking really good questions. What's been your experience with dealing like people like me before? How have you tried to solve this problem before? What other things like that have you found most helpful in being an effective salesperson? Because I really love this kind of stuff. It kind of simplifies it for me, makes it a little bit more tangible. Uh, And ultimately, we're all salesmen in some capacity, whether you're applying for a job, you're selling yourself, whether you're starting a business, you're selling a product, we're all in that game. I think having a process, I think it's really, it's the number one thing that I see with most companies that I work with. They just don't have a process. They have a process for everything else, for operations, for HR, for accounting and finance and 
all those things, right? But they never, they don't really, they can't tell me what their sales process is. How do you sell so? How do you take them from A all the way to Z? Like, how do you do that? And do you do it the same every way? Is there a process? Because my my whole belief is that the secret is in the system. It's in the systems that you have because systems don't fail. People fail. And people fail when they don't follow systems. But you first got to have that system. You've got to have that process involved. And that's the number one thing that I see that companies don't. And what makes it even worse is I see companies that come to me all the time that want me to help them hire and build sales teams. And they talk to me about hiring people and adding people in the sales roles. And they don't have any of these things in place. It's like you're almost setting somebody up for failure. Can you maybe give me an example of what a sales process looks like? Like break that down into the most basic terms and walk me through what are the most critical steps should be in somebody's process if we're just starting from scratch. Sure. For me, it's prospecting, right? The number one thing is like prospecting, call that kind of like the, the top of the funnel, if you will, right? Like where am I going to find people to do business with, right? And you have to have a process around that. Now that's could be a sales piece. It could be a marketing piece. Prospecting could be, it's either going to be inbound or outbound. So inbound means that I'm putting social media posts, doing search engine optimization. People are finding me and they're coming into my sales funnel, aka sales process, right? Or outbound, right? I'm making cold calls. I'm sending out cold emails, those sort of things. But how are you prospecting them to get them into your funnel? What are you using? What is your What are your process around that? Now, Once you get them in, now what are you doing with them? Most of the time, it would be giving them some sort of free information. If you're roofing, it would be a free estimate, right? If you're maybe selling marketing services, it may be a a free report. If you're selling anything else, it would be some sort of analysis or something like that. But giving them something free so that they can learn a little bit about your service, about your product, what it is that you do. Free samples, right? You see this at the mall in the food court, constantly handing out free samples. That's a sales funnel, right? That's a sales process. They're handing out samples to get people that are interested and then making the ask that, hey, did you like that? Would you like to move to the next step? And then the next step is normally some sort of a, a discovery call. Some We call it a deep dive as well, where we're finding out about problems, challenges, things that they are having going on in their business that they may need our solution for, right? And then that's what we're doing with that. That's a brief call. And then it's, huh, let's take all that information and let's take it back and put it together in some sort of a proposal that we can send to them, that we can go over with them that talks about, hey, you got this problem. Here's how we can solve this problem, okay? Then we send them out a proposal. And then next thing we move is to a closing call. To where we're going to ask them for the sale, which by the way, where most people, most salespeople fail is the very end asking for the sale. So we're going to go over the proposal. And at the end, if we think that we have the solution that can fix their problem, then we're going to ask for the sale. You said that most salespeople drop the ball right at the one yard line. Do they not just ask or what is the critical miss there right at the end? Fear of rejection. Right. They're already thinking in their head, right? Oh, maybe the proposal wasn't good. Maybe they were they weren't that into it. Maybe we don't have what we can what can fix their problem. Are they going to say? Maybe they think the price is too high, right? They're doing all this mental exercises in their head about what they think a prospect's going to say. And what I always say 
is whenever you're just trying to think about what somebody's going to say, nine times out of 10, you're going to be wrong. You know, when you try to guess, that is the lowest form of knowledge that you have. When you're trying Mm -hmm. to guess at what somebody has, just ask them, they'll tell you. And then you have to have tools to be able to work within that, which most people don't have either. That rejection is such a strong negative feeling, even if it it's more often than not, doesn't have anything to do with you personally. To me, it sounds like if you can't ask for the sale, either you don't believe what you're selling can fix the problem, which comes back to that passion piece you were talking about at the beginning. You're going to be passionate about what you believe in. Uh, Or somebody doesn't know all of the necessary information because you didn't ask the right questions, which maybe gets back to the sales process point. And maybe there's an issue with that process. Yeah. It's interesting. Have you ever seen, I've seen a video about a long time ago, a guy on the street trying to hand out hundred dollar bills to people, right? Hey, here's a hundred dollar bill. Now I'm good. Here's a, here's a hundred, right? And I'm trying to hand out these hundred and people just wouldn't take it. But here's the thing that's rejection, right? Nope. I don't want the hundred dollar bill, but guess what? At the end of the day, he still has a hundred dollar bill. Is that hundred dollar bill any less valuable because the person said that they didn't want it? At the end of the day, it's still a hundred dollar bill. It's still valuable. The same thing with your solution when it comes back. If you have that belief in it and the person rejects it, you still know that this is the solution. I still got the $100 bill. I got the goose that lays the golden egg. And if it ain't for him, then maybe it's for somebody else. And then you got to go on to the next one. And that's what sales is, just that repetition. But having that process and willing to do it over and over and over and over again. And that's mm-hmm. why most people get that rejection and they stop, they freeze up, and then it ruins their day, their week, or they quit or whatever it is. It's ridiculous when you think about it. It really is when you put it that way. Oh my God, one person said no. If you're selling to small business owners, there's 33 million small business owners out there. <laughs> Go find another one. That's why you have a process. But this is the thing, when you have more leads right? You've done the top of the funnel and you've had that process where you're bringing on all these leads, then those no's don't bother you because you're going to get those no's. And you have to just understand that. What is the antidote for overcoming rejection? Mindset. It's all in your mind, right? And it's how you perceive things in your mind. And it all goes back to things that have happened in your life, times that you've been rejected, right? All those things, you don't see those things happening during the process, but that is... So you have attachment to those things and how that made you feel before when you got, when you got rejected, but attachment's a big thing. Like you have got to become unattached of the outcome, whether that person says yes, or whether they have to, or whether they say no, you can't be attached to it, right? Because ultimately at the end, if you did your job, then you're good. You can't control what that person's going to say. So don't be attached to it. Detach. That's so difficult, especially getting going because we put so much heart and effort into these things. It's really, really easy to take it personally. But you've been dealing with rejection your whole life. They say that children growing up before the age of seven have been told no 40,000 times. We should be used to it by now. And you would think, like I always say, you want a good salesperson, get a kid. They're the best salespeople out there. They don't care about that rejection. So where did you lose this? Where did you lose this ability? And it's the experience and the things that have happened to you along the way. 
No, that's a really good point. And I think it's weird to think that at one point in our lives, we didn't feel that fear, but now we've developed it over time due to whatever mom or dad telling us some something or some other weird external event that we didn't have control of. And then now that's getting us in the way of uh, closing on a sale. Yeah, because that's what happens, right? Like the world just gets you and it's all the junk that happens to you from then all the way on, right? A kid, you tell a kid no, right? He's going to ask you again. He's going to ask you again. He's going to ask you why. He's going to ask you questions, things like that, right? To help to understand. But we lose this when we go as we get older. And if you go into a role like sales and somebody tells you no, it's like it bothers you so much. You don't ask any questions. You just want to go home and roll up in a ball and lay in bed. So we need to be taking lessons from toddlers and basically just ask why until we're blue in the face. And understand that that's a great opportunity to learn, right? If somebody does reject a proposal or wants to go another way or whatever, like that's a great opportunity for you to learn on why they didn't choose your solution, right? So that you can take that as feedback and do better on the next one. So you got to look at, you never lose, you just learn right? There's no lose. There's just learn. That's it. So it's, it's your perspective and your perspective on things. And that all starts in here with mindset. Let's say that you're starting something out brand new and you're going to build out your sales process for it. You're going to people and everybody is telling you no. How do you think about when it's time to change the offer as opposed to perhaps when you haven't spoken to enough people yet? If, every, if everybody's saying no and everybody's saying no for the same reason, then that's feedback. So you've got to take that and you've got to go back and a couple different things. Maybe you don't have product market fit. Maybe you're priced too high. Maybe you're priced too low, right? W whatever it is, like all that stuff is feedback. You got to take that and go back and understand what your customer wants. And this all is front-loaded. This is, you're talking about being this way as an entrepreneur, starting a business. Most people haven't done that in the beginning. They haven't done the proper market research to find out if they had product market fit. Because if so, you would have found this out in the beginning, not at the end of the sales cycle. And you would have never pursued it. Not talking to enough people in the industry to find out if this is even something that the market wants. This, is this something that the market wants? Is this something that the market can afford? And is this something that the market will pay for? Then you got product market fit. They're all really good questions and things to be considering as you're bringing a new offering or maybe even trying out an existing one uh, on the market. Do you have any other techniques, frameworks, things that sit on the front of your mind as you're selling something or thinking about starting a business? Yeah, I always I always share this with whoever I talk to. I didn't come up with all this stuff. I'm just not that I'm just not that smart. I came from the Philadelphia public school system, barely. Went in the military at 17, barely. And I did not learn all this stuff on my own. I've read a lot of books. I've had a lot of mentors and I've developed my own style with it, but I lay on a lot of people that have come before me. And one of the persons that I will pay homage to here and give everybody who's watching this a resource to is a guy by the name of Chris Voss. Chris Voss has a book out there called Never Split the Difference. It's all about negotiation. That's what sales is. It's all about negotiation. He's a former FBI hostage negotiator. So he knows a lot about negotiation and he will give you a lot of stuff that you can use and the framework that you can use 
throughout your whole sales process. And that he won't show you what a sales process is or any of that sort of stuff. But what he will do is he will help you with certain sales tactics, techniques, strategies, things like that. There's, I could sit here and train on that for hours on the stuff that I learned. And it's not even a sales book, right? Like it's a negotiation book, but at the end of the day, everything in life is a negotiation. What other books or people do you find yourself referencing that you think would be helpful for the sales warriors listening to this call? Yeah, I read a lot of mindset books as well. I've been doing sales for a while. I have a lot of experience on that. I can learn from anybody. I listen to a lot of podcasts from different sales leaders. I listened to a lot of social media videos, things like that. But really the mindset piece is the biggest thing that I think people neglect. And everybody just wants to know the tactic. They want to know the strategy. But most of them, most of us all have mindsets that will not allow us to actually deliver on the majority of those things until we get our mind, get the mind, then you get your grind. All right. I read a lot of stuff by special operators, Navy SEALs, books like that. I love everything by David Goggins. You can't hurt me. And then his latest book as well. There's another book that a lot of you might not be aware of, but actually I think this guy lives down, down by you, Brock, in, in the Virginia beach area. His name is Rich Vinny. He's a former Navy SEALs officer, commander, and he wrote a book called The Attributes. And it talks about all the attributes of top performers. I highly recommend that book. So that's where I spend a lot of my time in, in reading. There's a couple of resources there. On sales now, like I said, it's just, I pick up a tactic here, but really you, you won't learn it in a book. You won't learn it in a course. You're only going to learn it in the course of action. So you got to get out there and put the stuff into action and you will learn far more than you ever will in a book or a course or a program or a podcast or a post. Get out there, do the work. I like it. And that, that rounds out your opening points about the perfectionism really nicely. There's really nothing that's going to get you to the point where you're ready other than just doing it. Hal, I really appreciate this conversation. It's been very informative, educational, and entertaining for me. I believe that the audience will have enjoyed it as well. What is the most important thing that we can take away from you today? Action. Imperfect action. Massive. Take a lot of actions. Go out. Make a lot of mistakes. And that is where you'll figure things out, right? And I think that the ability to take action, I think, is something that is missing in this world on a lot of different places, not just in business, but the ability to like stand up, make a stand for something, go out and take action, be okay to fall on your face, laugh at yourself, it's okay, and get back up, dust yourself off and go do it again and, and figure it out. And I think as military folks, like we, we have an innate ability to really do those sort of things because of the training and the experiences that we've had. But that, that's, the, that's probably the biggest thing that, that, I can, that I can leave you guys with. What can myself or the audience do to be useful to you? Read our newsletter, Startup Veteran. I'm really excited about that. If you guys have learned a lot from me, I have a bunch more, dozens of more veteran entrepreneurs that you can learn from because that's why I started the newsletter was to have military veterans tell stories about their entrepreneur experience because I'm not the only resource out there. There's close to 2 million veteran entrepreneurs out there building businesses. They're building businesses, 
They're doing great things. They're hiring other veterans. They're having a lot of success. And in our newsletter, Startup Veteran, they want to share that experience with you. So you can learn from these folks. You can learn from people that were in your same branch, in your same rank structure, wanting to get into a certain sector of business that you did. We have dozens of articles, different industries and different people with different backgrounds. But the one thing that we all share in common is that we were all veterans and we all went out there and got started with something. And that's what Startup Veterans all about. I'll be sure to include your links and the latest startup veteran in the show notes. Hal, I really appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. Hey, it's been great, man. Had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a blast. <laughs>